Bienvenidos to Merendiendo. Today's guest is the one and only Jose Torres Tama, up from the swamp of New Orleans. Jose Torres Tama is a writer, poet, journalist, renegade scholar, educator, visual and performance artist. He explores the effects of mass media on race relations, the underbelly of the North American dream mythology, and the anti-immigrant hysteria currently gripping the United States of amnesia, which seduce you to embrace forgetting. Obviously, he's a poet. Like, what kind of a bio is that? In our conversation, we talked about making theater out of a taco truck, the urgency of creating provocative art during these pandemic times, the particular, maybe even spiritual, responsibility of being a Latinx artist right now, uplifting migrant stories, dealing with tour cancellations, all sorts of stuff, and duendes, okay? Duendes everywhere, duendes taken over. I'm into that. Well, hi, Jose. Hey, how are you? I'm awesome. Really nice to have you on this podcast. Um, we were having a little bit of a pre-discussion here, and you asked, so are we pochas canadienses? <laughs> um, so, I mean, obviously, you know that, like, the States has its own culture, and uh, especially where you are in New Orleans has its own culture. And in Canada, like, honestly, I don't, I'm not even sure I know what pocha means, but I know I'm a hybrid mixed flower of the Americas growing out of the soil that is here regardless of imaginary borders, you know? Oh, I love that. So pocha is a term that is often used for mainly Mexicans who were born in this side, on this side of the border. They call them pochos, you know, of Mexican descent, but born in uh, Aslan and in, in the United mm -hmm. States of Amnesia, right? So you would be um, referenced to as a Canadian pocha, right? Born on the other side of, of the Rio Grande border, right? Mm. We use, I use pocha in, Mon in Monterrey, we're border with the States, but we use it mostly when like my aunt, my aunts who married American men, they lost the way to talk it, like Spanish fluy. So when you were like, um, 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 we would say like, que pocha, ya no sabe hablar español. Claro, like, claro, claro. Huh? It's like when you can't remember your own language and you uh -huh. say like, like maybe tú sabes cómo es like when I do stuff and you're like, hey, pocha. So it's coming from the same roots, you know, and some people have an, uh, you know, where you could say that as a little bit of a, uh, a loving derogatory remark, uh, also like pocha, like Chicano has be, been reclaimed by uh, Mexican uh, Americans on this side of the border, right? Mm. For example, we were performing in Mexico uh, they see everyone, all Latinos to them are pochos. Like they were like, and they're all Chicanos. They were like, they were like, oh, ese Chicano ecuatoriano, he's like a killer poet, you know. And I was like, and they said, oh, ese Chicano, ese es, es que es Chicano, no, no, es ecuatoriano. Pero, bueno, for, for them, everyone's Chicano, right? In mm -hmm. Mexico, la ciudad de Mexico. So again, it's, you know, we're dealing with these uh, cicatrices colonial, that's what I call them, colonial okay. scars. Okay. Like, these unnatural borders. One of the, yeah, one of the things we've talked about on this podcast before is, um, I mean, Mexican supremacy, bro. Mexican supremacy in Latin America. It's like, it's a thing. And we always have to remember that, like, not every person who speaks Spanish who comes from the south of the States is Mexican. And it's just like a narrative that's so common and we got to dismantle it, among other things. But Well, you know, because uh, we can't deny that Mexico City is the 
artistic capital of Latin America in many ways, right? It was for many ways, and it, and it still has a rich culture. Now, what happens growing up for me in the Northeast, because uh, I grew up in New York, right? So there, everyone was Puerto Rican. So I always say that I was honorary Puerto Rican because I did. I grew up, uh, you know, everyone just saw you. Whereas in the Southwest or in, in the rest of Gringolandia is a very geographically challenged mind they see everyone as Mexican. When you grew up in the Northeast, everyone was Puerto Rican because of the predominant nature of the Puerto Rican people. Now, I love me some Puerto Rican people because I grew up with all of them. So um, I also, like when I used to perform at the New Rican Poets Cafe, when I was back there in the 90s, I was like, because, you know, I really love Chilango and Chicano slang. So I often people, because I use it in my work, people would think I, I was Chicano and go, well, no, 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 you know, I've been re really rethinking my relationship to having been raised here. And I'm like, I'm an Ecuayorquino. And I would go and I would do the slams at the infamous and famous um, New Yorican Poets Cafe. And I would go there and I would win this. I, you know, I, I, when I first, and I loved it when I just, I just showed up, right? I was like, I wanted to go, you know. And I knew some people there that I had known, that I had been connected to because I already had been performing in New York. I was like, I just wanted to show up at a slam, you know, with, and nobody know me, and then boom, and I dropped my stuff, and I won the first slam that I, I was ever there. And then one of the, Keith Roach was there, and Lois Griffin, really two brilliant African-American poets themselves who are in that book called uh, Living Out Loud or something, it's about the New Yorican Poets Cafe, right? And uh, so they were like, hey, that was good. Um, so you want to come on Wednesday? You know, the, the, um, the competition gets a little bit stiffer. I said, sure, sure, I'd be happy to come. So I come on Wednesday, and boom, and I win that slam. And they were like, whoa, that was good. Okay, all right, all right. Let's curate you into the, the Friday Slam, which is a curated slam with some of the top winners from previous slams. So, sure. You know, and boom, and I won that slam. And, you know, it was just like, uh, you know, but granted, I was rehearsing the shit out of my stuff because you have to be three minutes. You know, like you can't go. They're very strict rules. Three, three minutes and each round, there's three rounds. You got to do a new poem. Yeah, so I created some of my best work during that time period because it was like, you know, you were throwing down with... People like Sarah Jones, uh, you know, some amazing uh, Willy Perdomo, you know, the young Willy Perdomo back then. And when I won the third slam, they were like, wow, you know, we'd like to consider to invite you into the New Yorican Poets team. And I was like, sure, that would be an honor. Uh, but uh, Lois said, so are these part of a, a show? I said, oh, yeah, yeah, this is part of my new solo show. So they happened to produce three of my works from just the slams. Um, so showing up from from 19, I was back there in 1996. So, the, so in like um, three or four years time, they produced each one of my early solos. So there's a lot to be said for just showing up and throwing down your work, right? Um, I do believe that uh, when you do it under such really naked circumstances and raw circumstances, you have the most important ingredients, and that is... Um, the power of your text, of your poetic text, and then your delivery. And then, of course, I always tell poets, if you memorize your stuff, you could drop it from the top of your dome. And if you memorize it and play backwards, you could do whatever you want for it. And you could really, the word becomes flesh, right? You can really uh, inhabit what you have to say and do all kinds of, uh, you know, I'm a big fan of all kinds of duende-like rituals. When I was in college, I wrote a lot about Federico Garcia Lorca. I'm a big fan of his work. And he believed in duende. He believed that the artist needs to be, you know, possessed by the duende, the flamenco dancer and the flamenco guitarist. And, and boom, and you fly and you become avatars of new truths. Yep. I, I love that question of um, 
what will be this month's special at the Taco Truck Theater, right? And the Taco Truck Theater literally, literally parked right outside my door. Yeah, so we have an incredible cook, Heidi, that I don't know if you saw the film, Heidi's African-American, she makes all the fabulous food. So Heidi was really brilliant and very open. And, I, and she, was like, Hi, uh, she asked me, what do you want to see? And I said, and I said straight up, I said, look, I want to see the immigration reform burrito because we need that, right? And then uh, I just thought, these are things that, just came up in my head, you know, the guacamole, the dreamers guacamole salad, right? And these uh, are real food items people can buy and eat. Yeah, yeah, when they when they go, when they order them, they're like there on the menu and they have the ingredients and Heidi prepares them and it's really quite funny. It's quite brilliant because it's a radical outdoor dinner theater. Like people are out there eating and there's nothing like performing. We've done it way in the daylight, but I love doing it at dusk. When we're out there, like we did it at the New Orleans Museum of Art, and I encouraged him. I said, all right, let's start at 7. It was in April. It's still dusk. But then it transitions. The show's about 75, you know, 80 minutes, something like that. It, it goes by very quickly, actually. Um, but it transitions into night, and it's just magic. And then we have these uh, halogen work lights that hit the truck, and the way the truck is painted, it just gives it this magical, realist look. So it's really quite uh, quite the... Um, outdoor radical dinner theater spectacle it's awesome it's awesome so for people who are listening who aren't super familiar with the project base it's all of that and to just kind of like distill it even more it's it's like a theater on wheels ensemble performance which challenges the anti-immigrant hysteria and is driven by a live music sound bed uh, right and we align with black lives matter because of our contingency uh, of our amazing non-binary African-American cellist, poet, performer, Spirit McIntyre. And they offer some really brilliant pieces. In fact, when I first engaged Spirit to be involved, I asked them, is there anything that you have on the Black Lives Matter issue? So we have to make sure that we understand it. Our, our theme for this show is no human being is illegal and Black Lives Matter. To make sure that we, we explore that parallel struggle of black and brown people in the United States, uh, but you know, with a constitution that has never really been written for us, right? Mm -hmm. So when I engaged Spirit, they told me there's a song that I have that I've constructed, composed, uh, that was inspired by the Sandra Bland brutal murder, right? And so we use that, and then they came up with other pieces, whiteness and, um, and their Black Lives Matter. So it's really quite amazing. Um, and, you know, in, in the sense of engaging collaborators that we gave agency to, because that was always my interest, is like, let them speak from their voices. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's, that's the way that, you know. Uh, but I engaged people that I had believed would offer some powerful things to say. The piece ends with two dramatic stories that I tell as a third person. I don't, I don't inhabit them. I, I tell them. And I would say, and Juanjo told me he was lost in the desert for five days in the Arizona heat. And he was actually hoping that La Migra immigration would catch them because they were dying of thirst. They were dehydrating already. There was a, two young boys that they left behind of maybe the ages of 12 and 13 that all they did was leave them with a container of water and Juanjo did not know what happened. Right? So this kind of really dramatic story. And then Raul's story, of course, that you see in the film is one where he's sequestered, right? He's sequestered 
uh, with the, that that story that we're learning more and more. He's Honduran. He's sequestered, um, and uh, you know he's about to be killed if the money's not wired to the account because they had reached out to his brother in Oklahoma, and literally when he sat, when Juanjo Juanjo told me, "You think my story? Tu crees que mi cuento está fuerte?" Esperate lo que te va a decir Raúl, ¿no? Raúl sits down, Raúl says to me in español, José, yo estaba 11 segundos a la muerte. I was 11 seconds from dying, right? And I'm like, wow. And then the story unfolds. So I, I give great uh, honor for people sharing these stories with me. And there's so many of them that we couldn't fill them all in the Taco Truck Theater performance because, again, it's also built on the agency and narratives of other performers, right? Mm -hmm. So um, one of the things that we're looking to do within the next year or so is figure out how to chronicle these stories in a larger format to make them more available. The project is continuously evolving. And now with United States of Amnesia, I'm going back into that docu-theater process. And in Washington, D.C., we're going to be interviewing Muslim, African-Americans, and uh, undocumented um, people, Latin people to explore now where we are under this current administration and the gravity of what has happened in relationship as well to the pandemic. Some pretty heavy stuff sometimes, no? But the, as you could see with the Taco Truck Theater, it's also very funny, right? We, you know, I, I have to use humor. We all need humor. Mm -hmm. And like the aesthetic is super, yeah, very magical realism and the outfits and the makeup, like it looks like everyone's got a really distinct makeup look, which is super disorienting and great. I have a specific question about your red cowboy hat. Uh-huh. The card on the front, is that a tarot card? Here, hold on. Okay, listeners, go look at the show notes and there'll be pictures, but you gotta see it to believe it. It's the Mexican- um... Loteria. Loteria. Of it's what, what card? Sol? El Sol. El Sol. I thought it was a, yeah, mm -hmm. that's an important one. Yeah, El Sol. So it's the Loteria Mexicana and I put it right there. Everyone loves this hat. This is the happy hat. It's really, if you see it in the film, it's brightly red. It was first like I began using it for that, for Bachuco character, just for the Taco Truck Theater. And now it's really been weathered. Yeah. This hat opened so many doors for me. Uh, people love this hat. Going back about telling uh, people's stories and doing docudrama, there's something that, that you said on the interviews I heard and the video that is, as artists, we have this big responsibility, but we're asking like, as a Latinx artist, as a Latino artist, like, is there a bigger responsibility and what do you think are those responsibilities? That's a very good question. First of all, you should know this about me, that and I try to encourage my other Latin writers and uh, Latin cohorts the same way, you know, I've been encouraged by my many mentors that we have to speak our stories. Mm -hmm. uh, first of all, as a, I've always been an atrevido, my mama, I mean, tú eres tan atrevido, no? <laughs> uh, and I've always been that way, you know? Uh, and I think to be a performance artist, you have to be a stream atrevido. And I am that because I'm willing to speak and quite honestly, I'm often say, you know, people say, oh, it's so avant-garde. And I said, no, no, no. All I'm doing is pointing out the obvious. And that's avant-garde in a country that dares not to look at itself and its atrocities in the mirror. That dares to forget its own atrocities. Because you can't create a greater sci-fi sci or science fiction narrative than a so-called freedom land 
built on the near genocide extermination of native people. The lands transformed into perverse private property, having the empire built by the enslavement of African men, women, and children. What we saw at the Rio Grande border with children in cages, that's nothing new. We've seen that here in New Orleans. We've seen women and children and men on auction blocks and in cages being sold. That's part of the legacy of this country. The enslavement, the empire built by the enslavement of Africans and their bodies transformed into private property. Let's make sure we understand that. Wall Street was founded on the hypothetical worth of the billions of the enslaved African people. That's, that's the founding of Wall Street. That's the, the founding of the collateral. So a lesser known fact about New York, everyone thinks New York and I grew up there, so liberal, no. The New York banks wanted to secede. They wanted to ask petition for New York to not be part of the union because they had the holdings of all the Southern estimated wealth built on the properties, the chattel, the human property of enslaved people. So as a renegade scholar, I do a lot of research so that I know where I can stand. And these are undisputable facts. This is not fake news. This is not, you know, alternative facts, right? Um, and then you have the third ingredient that adds to this sci-fi narrative of Freedomlandia, that the Northern territories of Mexico were appropriated through something called manifest destiny. And you have Texas, California, Oklahoma, Utah, Nevada, Arizona, New Mexico, Colorado, all those territories stolen from Northern Mexico with a war that the United States implemented to do so uh, by a lesser known um, four year president, Polk, who followed the manifest doctrine and the Monroe Doctrine. And that's where they established that entire further white supremacy that that the United States will decide on how the governance will happen across the Americas, meaning that they were going to be imperial posturing and we were going to be their colonized slaves. Very important for us to know that. And that's why my Pachuco character says, Orale, vatos, if you don't know 1848, Google it. Yes, Google it because Latinos, we love to Google. I love to say Google. Google, 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 Google. In fact, <laughs> to be honest with you, Google is an actual Latin term. No, no, I'm going to break it down for you. Google is an old Aztec term. From the Aztec goddess, Google gets a cuatle, which means look shit up and say, know your history in the United States of Amnesia. You know what I'm saying about those? Because I'm saying it. Oh, right. Oh, I need a second. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. We have a question for you. So yeah. it really sounds like there's you're just saying the truth. You're saying what you see, what you learn. I see that it's a lot of, I don't know, the word reimagining comes through only because it's reimagining a narrative that we're sold. That's all. For people who might be shocked by the news that you're saying, by the facts that you're spewing. Absolutely. Um, that's what we have to do. That's where, that's, but that, those are the special eyes of the prism that we have. Not prison, but the prism that I have as an Ecuadorian immigrant looking at, uh, as a, almost like an archeologist or an anthropologist, looking at the lies that are part of this country's history. It offers me a different window and door to really look at the reality because I'm not subjugated and I'm not actually colonized by that DNA blind nationalism that seems to be part of the problem in the United States of amnesia. Because mm -hmm. people have to forget 
you know, I tell them it's the artist's job to remember. So that ties into our question from a really amazing Mexican artist, Conchi Leon. So Conchi was our guest last week. She's based in Yucatan and in Mexico City. And we asked her if you could ask a question to a Latinx American artist right now, what do you want to know as a Mexican artist? And this is her question. It's in Espanol. She says, Si en tu teatro consideran que hay ingredientes de su lugar de origen, si lo han compartido con los espectadores, ¿cuál ha sido la respuesta? Y si no lo hay, ¿por qué decidieron en su teatro, en su lenguaje, no iban a incluir cosas de su lugar de origen? So just to translate in English for people who need that, um, if in your theater you consider that they're ingredients of your place of origin, do you share them with the audience? And what has been the response? And if you haven't done that and you've decided not to do that in your theater, in your language, why didn't you include them? So that's her question. And uh, continuing this like chain of just questioning and sharing and connect, making connections from artists in different countries, how would you respond to that? First of all, uh, I was going to say it earlier, and that is that it's within my DNA to make sure that I speak my people's stories and my people's pain. And I have the prism uh, that is my point of departure of dealing with the trauma of the immigrant experience. And that's what my work deals with. So therefore, in the docu-theater process projects that I've developed that include aliens, immigrants, and other evildoers as the first one, the solo show, and then the ensemble of the Taco Truck Theater as the second one, that's a part of the, there's an immigration trilogy. And the third one is United States of Amnesia. That's the third part of the trilogy. It is, it has been my prime directive to make sure that it's driven by people's stories. That yes, I could present my own story, but I, I began the docu-theater process because I really wanted to hear from people living the peril of what we know as the undocumented status. Therefore, looking with their permission to bring forth those stories in Aliens, I inhabited those stories. I performed the story of Honduran, of a Honduran reconstruction worker who almost lost um, his hand during a job. It was uh, epic and archetypal of the kind of um, intense labor brutality that our people were experiencing there with human rights violations and not having the proper equipment, being housed in, you know, in, in trailers that were really meant for two people and they would house 17 people, like he says, like an animal. And then uh, also the story of the Nicaraguan woman and I make the gender leap and I transform myself into the Nicaraguan woman that I interviewed in Houston, who's completely bilingual, working on her master's, who said to me, si sí, Jose, yo soy ilegal, I'm illegal, yo puse con, mi, con mis cuatro hermanitas, we crossed with my, it was four little girls crossing in the late of night, the Rio Grande border. So I wanted to bring what is sometimes referred to as efficacy, right? Bring real truth to the narratives of the show of aliens, immigrants, and other evildoers by therefore doing, actually propelling immigrant stories onto the stages of the United States that are rare. In fact, I wrote a piece called Staging Immigrant Stories for HowlRound Journal on that being the prime directive. So yes, I'm very much interested in doing so. And in doing so, all the, the day laborers and the Congress of day laborers and the immigrant people know that we do that 
in all my previous shows, and especially in the Taco Truck Theater. And we give out in the Taco Truck Theater shout outs to the Congress of Day Labels, to the activists, because we can do that. All of my work also has improvisational elements. I'm not tied mm-hmm. to script. You know, I'm not bound by any script that's always continuously changing. In addition, um, we break the fourth wall continuously. I do that within my performances. So in terms of this question, yes, I am a big believer, and it's my major prime directive to bring my people's story. Lo que yo le llamo el dolor de la gente y la lucha de la gente, ¿no? En los cuentos que presentamos. Y los hacemos simplemente porque nos han hecho invisible. And I do it because we've been made invisible here. Post-Katrina, a lot of people don't realize that this city has been rebuilt by thousands upon thousands of immigrant laborers. And to be clear for people who are, who don't know this, you are based in New Orleans, right? Yeah, so Katrina, yeah. In this book, The Louisiana Endowment for the Humanities, this is the tricentennial anthology published by a state arts agency that has culturally disappeared our people. We are nowhere to be found. There are three lines. This was celebrated and heralded by a state arts agency called the Louisiana Endowment for the Humanities. There's a chapter called Renewal about reconstruction reorms. We are not there. We are not to be found. They disappeared us. And there's like two or three sentences. There's one page that says, um, that's about the Honduran community, but it's, it's trivial. So this is the way white scholars and a state arts agency that's called the Louisiana Endowment for the Humanities has the white privilege to eradicate us from history. And that's the kind of disappearance that, and brutality of cultural deportation that our people have been experiencing here. So myself being the cultural warrior that I am, I'm holding them to task. I'm writing, you know, uh, I lecture about it. I lecture about the privilege of white scholars that they retreat because when I held them accountable, they just retreat into a white privilege as if it didn't happen. White supremacy no. is a hell of a drug. That's yeah. all. Right. And, and white scholars who, who don't want to be held to task, but, you know, we're holding them to task. You know, that's the job, again, of the artist. And I'm inspired very much by the work of Eduardo Galeano. For those of you who may not know him, he's like our Naomi Klein, Howard Zinn, and uh, Nam Chomsky put together, right? Um, and Galliano says this very important. He's been a conceptual mentor of mine. I never got a chance to meet him, but I've been a disciple of all his work. He says, it's very important to realize that there are governments and agencies, cultural agencies that work with governments to decide who shall be remembered and who shall be forgotten, especially in Latin American governments, like in Argentina, in Chile. The Madres in Argentina are still looking and demonstrating for the disappeared, right? And right now in Mexico, we have so many women being disappeared, right? I mean, yeah. Yeah, so you talk a lot about the United States of amnesia, that there's a cultural forgetfulness, and you deal with it a lot in your work. Um, But I'm curious, now in 2020, in this new context we find ourselves in, which is like, definitely sci-fi pandemic times. Um, I'm wondering about the effect of laptop activism in all of that and your opinion on that. We've been reduced to that. I'm a big believer of going out there and demonstrating, uh, putting one's physical body because we have to, because when when the government see the people, like we, let, we, let's not forget and let's applaud our Boricua people who, who made, who took to task that corrupt Puerto Rican governor, right? They took mm. to, Mm-hmm. They took to the streets five, six, seven days, weeks. They were there and they got them out. That is a learned lesson for us. You know, 
Look at what happened in the 60s, MLK, you know, all the demonstrations. Taking, going to the streets in Washington. Post this um, first stolen election by the chump and the agent of chaos with the support of the Soviet Union. It was great to see the women's movement right there the following day. More than any other time, I believe, that was the, the one demonstration that actually superseded the amounts of MLK's, the Million Man March, all of these, right, with the women demonstrating against a known uh, sexual predator, you know, mm-hmm. um, against a known um, violator and, you know. Pick any word you want, dude. I'm yeah. here for it. Oh, well, right. I mean, you know, let's make sure we understand that, you know, we're living the, here in this country. We are living the most dangerous live reality TV show ever with an actual, you know, ex-game show host billionaire who keeps firing people. The most brilliant aspect of this pandemic that we need to see light, I'm an undying optimist, is that it's exposing all the fault lines. I keep saying this. It's exposing all the fault lines that we know have always been there in the land of the free. And that's why I use, we hold these truths to be self-evident. You know, black and brown people were gonna die. The first ones, the most marginalized. Look at our undocumented people working the fields. They're considered essential workers. Have they raised their pay? You know, that's why I keep saying in those pieces, I don't know if you heard any of the cortaditos, right? Um, can I get a witness? Can I hear another si se puede from Dolores Huerta again, right? Talking about video cortaditos and picantes performance poems, was that something that came with this luck that happened where you had a sense of urgency of being like, I need to continue this work. I need to continue also saying the words and saying the names of the people that the United States of Amnesia tried to forget. That's is that how video cortaditos and picante performance points came to be? Just to clarify for people who don't know, these are some YouTube shorts that you've released along with your collaborators on your YouTube channel, which is linked in the show notes as well. Yeah. That's it. The sense of urgency is like, all right, these are the texts and some of them are new texts. Uh, the last one, Can I Get a Witness, was just a new text. I literally reworked over and over and over and over and over again last week until I finally got to the, that poem you know, finding its rhythm. But there was a sense of urgency for me because I thought, as I often do, what can I do now? I'm stuck. I don't want to just be continuing my laptop activism the way I was doing, but I need a creative release. So I was like, all right, we have the recorded text. Uh, uh, We're going to be releasing uh, an EP CD at, um, you know, close to, close to September because it'll be the 20 year anniversary of my collaborator, BA3 and I, you know, he goes by the acronym of BA3, uh, 20 years of him creating music. So we're going to release that. And that's called speaking to, to perverse power volumes one and two, you know? And then I thought we've got this recorded text. Let's, and I, I, I reached out to Bruce France who does the videos. The stuff I did, said Bruce, here's the, here's the first one. Here's a piece that's already recorded with this wild sci-fi la- soundscapes. What can you do? And Bruce came back and he's like, wow, that's fabulous. And boom, I sent him another one. And then boom, I sent him a third one. It's like, all right, now let's make these into the series. And I began releasing, right? Um, but they were built under this pandemic pause, created as the urgency of now, like Monica was saying. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And like this pandemic, you know, it's completely recontextualized a lot of things, but also a lot of things have not changed. You know, like we've said, Monica and I have discussed this. Some people started calling this time the great equalizer. And that's just, 
that's just blind spot, blatant blind spot right there. There's nothing equal about where we are right now. So I'm wondering for the impact of the virus, like what has been the impact maybe mentally and creatively for you? That's a very good question. You know, New Orleans, uh, I will have to say that it's been really beautiful the last couple of days in relationship to the hard facts that we dealt with when I came off tour. Um, we've had three days in a row with no deaths. Mm, amazing. For a city that was hit hard, 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 hard. Per capita, we were like the pandemic capital. Because, you know, it's only a city of 350,000, 400,000 people. But three weeks earlier, we had celebrated Mardi Gras that ended on Mardi Gras Day on February 25th. So the hindsight was that that's when the virus was brought in by, you know, literally a million point five people that came from all kinds of parts, all kinds of places. That came from everywhere on the globe. Right, a million point five tourists descended upon the city. And three weeks later, the pandemic hit hard. When I got back from Atlanta on March 16th, which is a Monday, the city went into you know, absolute lockdown. It was the last days you could have a drink at an open bar. It was the last day that you could actually sit in a restaurant. And then only until recently, last Sunday, did the city begin phase one of its reopening. But the shelter in place and all those strategies did work. It did because it was brutal. It was, I mean, immediately the New York Times just did a thing last week where some of the like six, some of the major elder statesmen of the well-known Zulu club went down. About six or eight of them died. And Zulu is the big African-American parade in the African-American neighborhood. Thousands upon thousands are along that parade route that may be three to five miles long. So some of the elder Zulu members perished. That's very real. So it's been very real and very positive to note that within the last three days, um, the city has not reported any deaths. And then, interestingly enough, a couple of weeks into it, the governor in his address that he gives every week to inform and speak to, to the citizenry and to folks said, it looks like it's trending that more African-Americans are dying uh, at a 60 or 70% rate. And then, interestingly enough, the African-American Tribune newspaper that I know it's publishes you know, brutally said the truth. He said, it's not a trend. It's a 400-year legacy. Hmm. We understand that, you know, marginalization. And the same thing, and then what you're not hearing, that I'm hearing is our undocumented community, our immigrant community, and the undocumented people in those brutal ICE detention jails. And Louisiana is one of the biggest jailers of immigrants in the country competing only being second to Texas, but the prison industrial complex is a big business here and immigrants are dying in these COVID-19 infected crowded captivity prisons, right? And that's why I have to write about that. I, I was following that story. I was following that story so much right after I got back home because I'm part of Voces Unidas, uh, an immigrants rights coalition volunteer network. I was getting all the feeds on the WhatsApp, the, yeah, the WhatsApp chat, and I was getting in, and I began writing, I began posting, I began trying to get articles, and I began following that story, and it was breaking my heart, and literally, that trauma was affecting me so much, that I, I was actually deferring my own economical trauma, and I was like, oh my God, I gotta, I gotta apply for some support, because things were very real, right? Mm -hmm. So, 
sometimes, you know, the urgency of the now became that. In addition, that's why the last one, can I get a witness, is about those prisons. Right? Did you guys get a chance to hear, see those? Yeah. Yes. What did you think, if I may ask? I mean, I keep on like, after I've heard it, just, I mean, I know you use repetition a lot in it. Can I get a witness? But that's been echoing throughout my days. Like whenever just some fact comes up, just in the back of my mind, it's just like, can I get a witness? Like it's been happening. Can I get a witness? Oh yeah, yeah. oh yeah. And then what about the one um, symbolic opponent syndrome with all the names? No, the- we we were talking about those trials. There's like a Netflix show that has some of the trials, like Giuliani. Yeah. They have the one about um, uh, the African uh, the student. Um, he came to America to study, and then like he was killed for by four officers forty times. And I I just watched a documentary. I'm a DBA. Yeah, I'm a yeah. But that thing, I also researched some of the names that you have, and I'm like, I have no idea this happened. Like it happened so there's so many people, and so often that you forget one. But then there's somebody new and I'm like, we can't forget. So I was really like, appreciate that you name a lot of people. And I, whoever I could find, I Googled them. And I was like, yeah. why didn't this news got all the way here? And I named it and I put the years as well. Yeah, and, which is great. And yes, in 1998, um, you know, actually from 96 to 2001, during the eight year reign of Juliana's administration, he's credited as cleaning up quotes, cleaning up the Big Apple. But it was built on uh, a zero tolerance policy where people of color, black, brown men, women, and children were just seen as the enemy. And I was living back up there during that time. And I had been more afraid for my own personal brown body. And I'm a mestizo. uh, And I had grown up there in the 70s and 80s when it was really harsh and gang violence. But I was up up there again. I was more afraid of myself uh, personally because of the police because there was violence all the time. And I was there when Amadou Diallo, 41 bullets, mistaken identity. And that happened last week. It's fucked up, you know? I mean, not it, but like, yeah, it's just, it continues to happen. Yeah. Yeah. It happens here because, and I call that another part of the systemic pandemic problem in the United States that's been happening. And, And that's why I also call out the names of someone like, Jesse uh, Hernandez, right? LGBTQT, 17 years young teen, you know, a leader in her community, in their community, uh, you know, gunned down by white police in Denver, right? So, and I call out names of lesser known aspects of Latin American and undocumented people killed by white police and ICE agents. So I, I write a lot about being dispossessed of your body. Mm-hmm. which is something that Tanahishi Coates writes about uh, in Between the World and, and Me, mm-hmm. which is also something that James Baldwin would write about because he's in, that, that phrase is inspired by James Baldwin in his book. And I'm a big fan of James Baldwin. Oh, yeah. So, mm-hmm. so Jose, how do we make sure we don't go back to the old Eurocentric plantation theater of pre-COVID and even now in transition? You see, I take a deep breath when, I, when you ask me that one. Yeah, that's, we need to do some work. We need some serious work, especially here in the United States of Amnesia. So a very close friend of mine who I won't name because he's just a precious human being, has been a supporter of my work for many, many moons, who is from the D.C. area, working with an organization that's very supportive of my work, 
we had a conversation, and there he is, because he's well invited, well recognized as a presenter in this large gathering with or Zoom gathering, that's right, this large Zoom gathering of major people from the National Endowment for the Arts and all these governmental agencies there in DC, big heavy hitters, you know, who control the purses of a lot of funding, right? And he said, I really hope that we're not going to be returning to these old ways that we can make sure that we support now and that we look more closely at how unjust and inequitable the system has been in relationship to funding organizations of color, African-American, Latino, Asian. And I'm hoping that we take upon ourselves that initiative. Are we going to see this type of embracing for this real change? Now, I'm paraphrasing in terms of what he said. And he says to me, what do you think was said? And he doesn't say anything else on the phone. They were silent. Big heavy hitters, predominantly Anglican power, plantation paradigm, Eurocentric structure, people who control the money. There was silence. There's a lot of work that we need to do, but we need to demand it. Mm-hmm. We need to demand it. That's all. This is a puzzle. We need to demand it. Right now, and I always tell my boys, I said, no tengo. Paciencia para gente sin conciencia. No tengo paciencia para gente sin conciencia. No tengo paciencia para gente sin conciencia. I've got no patience now for people without consciousness. So if we don't say anything, it's part of our problem. Hmm. We have to say everything we can right now. If we don't, the, the plantation's not going to give up the power. Because no one's going to come saying, uh, excuse me, sir, we're, we're from the plantation and um, we really would like to change the paradigm. We'd like to have a, you, you talk a lot about the Eurocentric paradigm power structure and shifting that narrative, but uh, we're knocking on your door for you to give us some clues on how we can change <laughs> a particular nepotistic uh, perspective that, you know, we suffer from because we love to see each other in the mirror all the time. And, you know, we know we, we, know we got to offer you, uh, you know, a little space and, you know, and I do like me some tacos. Uh, so, uh, and I know you, you're Ecuadorian. I don't even know what your people eat. What, what do you really want, Mr. Boca Mucho Grande? <laughs> That's just for you guys, right? That's just, <laughs> right, so they're not going to become knocked. They're not knocking on your door. That's not going to happen, right? So we have to push the doors down. As Latin women there, Latinx women in Canada, to make sure your voices are heard, you know, you have to impose yourselves upon uh, the situations where the control is quite obvious, right? Yeah. And I think we, have, we all have to hold them to task. Uh, the question we asked you earlier on in the interview, Conchi asked you a question uh, as a Latinx, uh, an artist with roots down South who lives in the States. And we're asking you if you were able to ask a question of an artist in the Americas, in this hemisphere right now, what would you ask? What do you want to know? What Anglo-Sajona? So, what are you going to do to make sure that our voices are heard? 
what are you going to do to continue a revolutionary theatrical perspective to make sure our voices are heard on all the stages, wherever you may be in that particular country? And what are you going to do in terms of making sure that we are not erased, right? Within that patriarchal power structure of the Anglo-Saxon Aryan Christian male narratives. All right. So if you listen to the next podcast episode after this, we're going to ask that question to the next guest. Fabulous work that you guys are doing. That's fine. All it is is giving platform for people to speak. And you know Uh that's the most powerful thing to do. You know. Yeah. And for us to learn, I think that's become a really important thing that I wasn't expecting that big, but I was like, oh my God, as an immigrant person in this country that I feel really like scared to talk about stuff because I'm just grateful to be in this place to actually sit down and be like, oh, okay. Oh, that happened. Oh, okay. Oh, I should know this. Oh, great, great, great. No tengas miedo. Thank you for for sharing so much of your brain with us today. I'm going to go have a shout out tequila. Mm. Yes. Right. I want to recommend this book to you by an Ecuadorian uh, undocumented um, writer. Really amazing. The Undocumented Americans. Who's the author? Carla Cornejo Villavicencio. The Undocumented Americans. Brilliant. Punk, uh, a punk perspective, young Ecuadoriana. Uh, another book I've been reading, people have been asking me about books. Martin Espada. This is uh, Zapata's, Zapata's Disciples. Really the great Puerto Rican poet. Um, of course, I've been reading James Baldwin, right? Uh, the Fire Next Time. And Guillermo Gomez Peñas. This is all in Spanish. Uh, called Vitacoria del Cruce, my mentor, mm-hmm. and Kafka. <laughs> These are such surreal, bizarre times, no? Awesome. So those are some meriendas for the brain. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So such a pleasure. You both are so warm and fabulous. I look forward to meeting you sometime in the near future. Mm-hmm. Yes, too. We will. We will. This podcast is recorded in Toronto or Dogarondo. The territory of the Anishinaabe Nation, the Wendat Nation, the Haudenosaunee Confederacy, and nations recorded and unrecorded. We are deeply thankful to these nations for stewarding the land so that we might live in peace and respect for each other. As it is outlined in the Dish with One Spoon One Pop, that all people who live here, settlers, indigenous folks, and others, must adhere to. Radio Aluna Teatro is produced by Aluna Theater with the support from the Metcalf Foundation, the Late Law Foundation, the Canada Council for the Arts, the Ontario Arts Council, and the Toronto Arts Council. Aluna Theater is Beatriz Pisano and Trevor Schwellness with Sue Ballant and Gia Namens. Radio Aluna Theater is produced by Camila Diaz Varela and Monica Garrido. For more about Aluna Theater, visit us at alunatheater.ca Follow at Aluna Theater on Twitter or Instagram or like us on Facebook. Follow and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever else you get your podcasts.